वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक सिंह टॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टूडे डिस्कस द मिस्ट्री ऑफ वायलेंस will think about violence using concepts and ideas from philosophy history criminology and justice how can violence be understood and what may be the fundamental source of the violent emotion how has it persisted through human history will enter the worlds of prisons rescue homes psychopaths wars rebellions general strikes and crimes and attempt to understand both the perpetrator and the prey can there be creative responses to the scars of the spirit and what is the long term future of violence and what would a world without violence be like we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor vijay raghavan he teaches at the center for criminology and justice at tis mumbai and he's been a practitioner and worked with youth offenders professor v sanal who teaches at the in the humanities department at iit delhi and dr dilip simian who's a historian and used to teach in delhi university he is a one time maoist activist and is currently an independent researcher and a writer and lives in delhi So Sanil, maybe we set the ball rolling with you. Um, you know, when we think of violence, one usually thinks of it using a means and schema um, to say that you know this justifies a certain end. Has it always been that way? What's the journey like, and how do you think of violence, um, both as a philosopher and as an observer of what happens around us? Yeah, we usually think about uh, violence within a means mm-hmm. and schema, and say whether. it is justified if it is for a just end or a justified end but we know that violence cannot be justified why so, do you say that i mean it obviously sounds right yes so because uh, that's the intuition that we often think that okay if it can only be justified if it is for some justified noble end so already once you take it within a means and schema we have already decided it in a certain way and then the question is whether the ends are worthy enough for using this dirty means of uh, violence and uh, so then you know we won't be able to break through that's why i really liked your topic as mystery of violence so we mm-hmm. are not we are going to approach the problem without having uh, any prior schema to uh, understand this uh, problem interesting and what is so mysterious about violence the way you see it uh, you know it's it's mysterious in fact there's an you know if you just see the epi- an episode it, you know gandhi is seen to be the almost the great proponent of non violence so there was an interesting engagement between him and 
Karyapa, who was the first field marshal of Indian Army. Mm-hmm. So Gandhi was very critical about Karyapa's, you know, asking for more resources for Indian Army. Mm-hmm. But when Karyapa met Gandhi, he asked him, you know, can you give me a message so that I can take it to my troops in the border? Yeah. So Gandhi was a great proponent of non-violence, immediately said, look, I am a child when it comes to questions of violence and non-violence. I am grouping in the dark. I don't mm. have an answer. But mm. when I, have, I will have an answer, when I have the answer, I will write to you. <laughs> and now this is like somebody who had, you know, spent his whole life on the question of non-violence. Immediately they said, you cannot immediately give a definition. You cannot immediately, because any of us would have given immediately, a, you know, quite manageable, you know, advice to him, but he didn't. Right. So I think that's the kind of care we need to have when we ask. For example, you know, the deci- we decided to talk about violence. Yeah. So we have already decided that, okay, we are not going to indulge, you know, going to fight here. Yeah. But then this assurance uh, shouldn't give us overconfidence. Okay, in that case, violence is something which, you know, really uh, we should start with a judgment that it is wrong, etc. Mm. So the, the kind of moral vigilance we have about violence, in some sense, you know, obscure violence. Hmm. You know, it doesn't allow us to get into this question about violence. So that's why I think maybe it's a good idea to, you know, keep out all these available schema and then approach uh, this this problem. And do you think of violence as some kind of a... clear Is, is violence always destructive? It is, isn't it? Um, it? It's some kind of a work of destruction almost. We'll I think we'll, we'll come back to that notion. Um, uh, Vijay, maybe we go to you and, you know, you, you worked with young offenders. Um, it's, it's a very interesting thought to hold in, in one's head. When does one first turn violent? Uh, when does one first turn towards violence? How do you know that there's such a thing as violence to turn to? Right. And how much of it is innate? How much of it is cultured, how much mm. of it is just purely instinctive, which mm. is almost the same as innate. I mean, what's what's your take on it? You've seen it from very, yeah. very close distances. Yeah. Uh, you know, the way I have, uh, you know, experienced this whole uh, issue that we are discussing today through the lives of, you know, young people who have been associated with acts of violence. You know, mm-hmm. uh, at some point, I've I kind of got an insight uh, into it by looking at it this way that it seems like some kind of a breakdown of dialogue in a person's life, you know. Uh, When I say breakdown of dialogue, what I mean is that, you know, with every violent person that I have had interactions with of some depth, uh, what has come across is that this person seems to be saying that I had to be violent because I had no other options left. It's the end so, of speech almost. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, is being pushed to a corner and, uh, uh, you know, having to retaliate. And uh, in that process, he almost comes across as, as if he is the victim. And if he, right. if he was, uh, he did not do what he ended up doing, uh, he would have been victimized. You know? So, uh, uh, another thing that I would uh, like to relate here is uh, also so that's that very interesting. You're saying that in a way the predator or mm. whatever mm. one may mm. use different words for mm. it. Mm. There's there's some kind of victimhood driving that. Yes, yeah. Mm. And uh, the, the, there's often a saying, you know, that today's victim is tomorrow's offender. You know, mm. 
is it's it's this it's the subjective sense of victimization hmm? mm. where where you know some of my colleagues for example who have worked with uh, say women who have been uh, convicted or arrested in crimes against women mm-hmm. you know in in the sense let's say looking at you know crimes against uh, in the context of domestic violence you know right. or cases of dowry deaths you know yeah, yeah. and uh, in this is one of my colleagues who has had some interactions with some of these women who were mothers in law and sisters in law who were arrested in such crimes sure and uh, the way they have narrated and constructed the whole story is exactly in these terms that you know it was almost as if that heinous uh, act of violence that they engaged in was an outcome of a long drawn out process whereby uh, you know she ended up painting the 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 victim as the offender you know mm. that you know she this daughter in law pushed me into doing what i finally had to do and if i if she if if i hadn't done what i did she would have done it to me you know mm. so uh, that kind of set the ball rolling into in the mind in terms of uh, you know ultimately uh, when we talk of violence we often uh, put it out there you know rather than internalizing it and looking at it in terms of uh, you know occasions when there has been a tendency to be violent within us uh then you you draw the attention away from you and you end up otherizing the the phenomenon then then you can paint these pictures in terms of black and white you know yeah whereas the moment you try to draw the whole thing towards yourself you know and you include yourself in the whole discussion of, on violence then you begin to see that it's a much more complicated uh, picture you know? yeah, yeah 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 that's very interesting i think there's some interesting strands coming out here which will tie as we go along um then if we go to you i think you know you you've had a very interesting life journey you've thought about it um, from vantage points which are very very unique what is violence to you and you know the point that vijay makes about the perpetrator almost playing out uh, a victimhood game there uh, how much of that resonates with you and what would be your take on it uh well let me try and address some of the issues that have been thrown up uh, by sanil and and uh, vijay um i think to begin with the whole issue of the teleological understanding of violence in terms of means and ends yeah. so that's one issue and uh, uh I would say that what we have in teleological discussions is an occlusion of the phenomenology of violence. So what we have is discussions about whether violence ought or ought not to be used, yeah. in what circumstances it is justified or not, whether it is at all ever just etc etc. Yeah. All presuming that we know what violence is. <laughs> that means I'm saying that one thing I find lacking in the whole critical theoretical even Marxist tradition and to which I belonged at one point is that there is an absence of a phenomenology of violence per se. Uh-huh. so i'll just put it on the table it's something that's worth discussing and that's something that i was trying to that i have been trying to grapple with uh not simply discussing whether it is or is not justifiable and in what circumstances but what it is that we are talking about because very obviously and very soon in such a discussion we 
are quickly made aware of the fact that violence is not something simply done by a predator on a victim, but it's also done by the predator to himself or herself. Yeah. yeah. So it's not something that you do to somebody else, but right. it's also something to, to you do to yourself. So, and therefore you undergo a change of character, etc., etc. So there's a whole number of ramifications, both at the, at the psychological and personal level, and at a broader level in terms of society, uh, where the violence is the end of conversation. Human beings are basically political animals, but politics is speech. Politics basically is rooted in speech. Yeah. So the end of speech means the end of politics. Yeah. So from some great political event is supposedly a, a, a sort of a, a premised upon violence, then we can say that it is premised upon a pre-politics, like mm. the French Revolution. It was preceded by violence. Mm. It's not that the violence was in, uh, implicit in the French Revolution. That's but very the fr- interesting. So yeah. it, it, what took place before the French Revolution was not politics. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And forever since it got intertwined so closely, they have never really recovered from the French Revolution because they had a <laughs> series of constitutions after chopping off the head of the king mm. and they could never really figure out what the source of legitimacy was. So there's a whole lot of philosophical questions, even political philosophy dealing with leg- the question of legitimacy, mm. which is actually a fascinating exercise when you get into it. You know, what legitimizes a regime if it is base- based upon, you know, regicide or something like that? What legitimizes it? So I'll deal, I'll try and address some of those. Um, and then this whole question of uh, the origins, the psychic origins. And uh, I'm sure uh, Vijay, I asked him before also that, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a, the, a psychology professor called James Gilligan mm-hmm. who has uh, written, I think, extensively. He would know more about it than me. But I've read one of his books, which is called Violence, our, uh, our most serious, our deadliest epidemic, violence, our deadliest epidemic, in which he has actually gone into the jails for the criminally insane, where people who have been saved from the gallows simply because they're deemed to be insane. Mm. And, they, and he's interviewed them. And he prefaces this book by saying, I'm going to, into a journey into hell, you know, but I feel that it has to be done. Uh, as a phenomenologist, as a scientist, of, as a criminologist, right. he wants to analyze it. And it's a very fascinating story. So he comes up with this conclusion also that the root of it, in this cancer, the, the cell that you look for, the black cell that you look for is shame. Mm. Shame. Shame. Mm. Shame and humiliation are the root. Where you find shame and humiliation, you will most certainly end up finding violence. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. So he's going into the psyche of people who have become criminals and become insane. But it, it, I find it quite easy to imagine that people might be driven insane mm. by, by shame and humiliation. From my own experience, I know that and whatever I've seen of the world and I've lived through Delhi in the middle of the worst communal massacre right. so I can see that there is there's a lot of truth in that so the, the, there's a link now immediately to the question of justice and it raises metaphysical issues concerning justice not merely immediate matters of governance you know but something far more that uh, you know uh, a, a society in which so many people are traumatized now we all know that the procedure process of justice has some healing effect by providing closure to people who are the victims of injustice yeah if they don't get justice they f- there's a perpetual wound you know in yeah. society it's a burning sore it's never shut and th- we, what we are doing is creating a society in which repeated acts of injustice and repeated trauma are suffered not merely by individuals but by large numbers of people yeah. are never allowed to heal. In fact, all we are doing is pouring salt and making wounds septic. 
given the situation, yes, if we are trying to understand, these are things that we must understand. I feel that we, in, in conversations like this, not only must we say what is normally said, oh, we are only asking questions, we cannot provide any answers. No, we must attempt to find answers also. Howsoever temporary <coughs> and, and tentative they might be, we must attempt to understand uh, what we are talking about. And I think one root cause is this cause of, of violence, uh, this mystery of violence is is not really a mystery at all. Uh-huh. It's our incapacity to to deliver justice, the failure of our criminal justice system, the blatant biases in our criminal justice system, the fact that there's so many traumatized people around, the fact that we humiliate people, the fact that humiliated people and ashamed people cannot hope to have their their pain acknowledged even. So lack of acknowledgement is also, you know, the first step towards justice is to acknowledge that there's been an injustice. If you if you don't even want to acknowledge that, then we are nowhere, you know. So that's another set of issues. But Dilip, what is the response for the humiliated? What can be a response for the humiliated? Um, well, if humiliated people approach the, the criminal justice system, then uh, do they approach it with any sense that they might get justice there? If over time people repeatedly experience the failure of this justice system, then they do not expect to get any justice there. So then they become attracted to nihilistic ideologies, which are basically one way, I mean, one aspect of these ideologies, I'm not saying it. the explanation encompasses all its aspects. Sure, sure. But one aspect of these ideologies is that they provide some kind of maybe fantastical hope mm. of getting justice. So this is what I've repeatedly pointed out here. I've been asked to speak to gatherings of bureaucrats also quite quite often in the recent past. Mm-hmm. And I've often told them, you know, that everyone uh, tries to put forward this very belabored notion that the violence of Maoism, etc., etc., is because of economic underdevelopment. And once we develop it, then the violence will go away. It's actually got nothing to do with economics. Nothing whatsoever. That if people indulge in violence, it's not because they're hungry. It's because they're angry. Mm. The people who uh, who rammed into the World Trade Center were not hungry. They were mm. angry. Mm. So it's a sense of injustice, a sense of shame and humiliation that it's a root. If you're talking at the, at the level of a motivating factor in the human psyche, sure. these are things that, that there's a tremendous imbalance created in the soul by a perceived injustice and the complete incapacity of that soul to obtain any redress in the world around. So, Dilip, the reason why violence has persisted through history, you would say it's a failure of justice? No, I would not say make that comment about history. I was mm. confining these remarks to sure. trying to understand what is the reason for continued uh, you know, violence in the society today. But... Um, if one goes into history at How would large, you think of it historically? Then historically, yeah. then there are all kinds of notions of aggression, conquest, empire. Yeah. You know, the fact is that human beings, I mean, if you look at the history of the state and the history of, at the core of all state structures is a, is a solid, uh, you know, amount of criminality, you know, and violence. And big state structures are set up on the basis. I mean, if you look even at the history of the British colonial rule in India, it was it was a period of extreme amounts of violence. Yeah, you know, 
where entire communities could be wiped out they and could they be monopolize violence monopolize the, so the yeah. monopoly of violence and the perpetration of violence on large numbers of people irrespective of their being immediately responsible or not you know the the dubbing of entire tribes as being criminal tribes and so on so this kind of phenomenon uh, it 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 betokens a kind of criminal core to the very activity of uh, setting up a state that's very interesting dilip i think we'll come that and Certainly. touch touch upon yeah, some yeah. of the points you've spoken about why has violence persisted through history um sanal yeah i think you know i know it's easier to ask that than to answer that one totally gets it but why has it persisted through history yeah the the, the let's not start with the idea that it shouldn't have persisted yeah. in the sense you know we think that okay it is because of some error or some uh, failure in this yeah. right uh because you know as uh, uh dilip said you know when you know moments of injustice moments of uh, humiliation right violence seems to manifest in human history at the same time you know as we know pointed out we don't have a phenomenology of right phenomenology should have told us okay which part of our soul our being that this violent outrage is coming Hmm. but the now the question is the difficulty of answering your question is to ask why we don't have a phenomenology of right i think that has to something to do with the nature of violence it's not because our cognitive incapacity or we have not thought in about it enough that we don't have a phenomenology that's very interesting there hmm. is something about violence which actually makes this phenomenology very difficult i think what is what is it that now for example you know we are all very hypersensitive about violence now yeah right you know in professional settings and all that then many things which even 5 years ago was not uh, uh, you know why act of violence it's now an act of violence we can't now share jokes everything so more and be, more things are falling under the ambit of violence violence um, we have become extremely hypersensitive to violence but at the same time our engagement with violence is now only in the media or in the image yeah right we only see victims of violence Mm. and we don't have a phenomenology of uh, violence and even when you know that's where maybe you know we could even uh, you know i would like to also hear from you you know when we have criminology anthropology when some of these studies come that is also preventing the perpetrator to speak it's okay there is something about your psyche which uh, science has to uncover you cannot speak for uh, yourself and also you know if experience like humiliation right in some sense is that i want to disappear from the world that's what a humiliated person i don't want to appear yeah neither to you or and for a moment i wish if i could rebuild the world without me that is what a moment of humiliation is i also want and i want to be this impersonal i want to join with you and i shouldn't be uh, here so in in some sense hatred is also like that we want to rebuild the world you know without the hated uh person so in some sense i think our hypersensitivity to violence and the way violence have disappeared from our everyday world in some sense we only see now the series of refugees victims uh in the media so i think this problem you know makes this phenomenology uh difficult we don't know now where to uh you know start with uh, about the questions about uh violence and when you say we don't see it you mean we don't experience it um what does that mean because clearly there are images of uh, 
beheadings happening on live screen of course one is not there where it's happening but i mean it's it's pretty much in the front and center of our imagination isn't it going to say that ha huh, so it's all in the image for example like even in the, the beheadings it is the victim who is speaking yeah right and you know as uh, uh, vijay was saying even when the perpetrator speak he will say i am a victim of something else yeah right so we haven't heard people speaking as uh perpetrators, perpetrators at perpetrators uh, right we don't know what that calculation in their mind is uh, going on so we don't have so there's some way in which we are screening ourselves from hmm. uh, this it's only when a person's repentance that we hear i shouldn't have done it right that is when we hear uh, people speaking about uh, uh, you know and because that's why i think today the violence is available to us as toys <laughs> but you know increasingly toys are becoming very user friendly and i remember the gun i had as a child it could really hurt me because but now the new uh, you know uh, <laughs> toys are so well made that it won't hurt anybody in fact i saw a gun which actually when you press it creates all the lights and all the shooting sounds as if it is in a movie and after a moment of silence you also hear the victim's cry also from the uh, gun itself this some way you know for me this is like an impossible <laughs> yes complete the circle and we no longer have access to this uh, phenomena so i think but as we need to know how do we open it up so that you know it's our simulation almost it's simulating violence yes. at a very very small scale so in a way what you're saying sanal is that the testimony of the victim is not enough and and you're saying that we haven't heard the perpetrator i know it's the, the testimony of the uh, victim itself it's not it's not enough that will be, if you say that that will be a great act of violence towards the mm. uh, the victim mm. they should we don't even know how mm. the victim is speaking you know because the the problem is definitely if speech is all that we have now sort of against violence something mm. in concrete opposition but as we know the speech is always full of ideology manipulation acts of violence in itself and very often the victim is silent right we need to know how to open up the victim silence if you really want to understand mm. right mm. and from there we need to uh, what was that real encounter the victim had with the predator right and uh, maybe we will only have the testimony of the victim but from the victim's testimony how do we uh, get an access to the scene of violence mm. right violence is a scene and that is where i think we uh, Uh, you know today have a difficulty in getting to the problem i think if i may just interject at one point here it's very interesting reflection that even the worst uh, perpetrators of violence would prefer to represent themselves as victims even the nazis yes. said that the germans are the victims of the german jews of european jews mm. so at the moments of the so worst so the satanic version of pure so evil it's it's, is, a, it's a complete so it shows how crucial is the concept of justice hmm hmm you know if when even the holocaust is represented as some kind of just uh, in, the na- kind of in, in the mind of the nazis as hmm. some kind of act of of justice against uh, against these uh, people who are oppressing them they they successfully represented the whole thing not successfully but they attempted to represent the whole phenomenon yeah. of the holocaust and genocide as if it's a, a, a as if it's a just reparation to the german people of what the jews were doing to them and to european civilization or to christianity or to whatever 
Yeah. So yeah. the fact that even terrible perpetrators of injustice like to prefer to represent themselves as being the victims, it shows how crucial the concept of victimhood is in all this. I mean, I've got other things to say, yeah. but you please, sure, I think. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, you know, just to kind of add on to what uh, both uh, Sunil and Dilip are saying, I think when we're looking at the increase of violence in society, uh, essentially when you're Is that a presumption? Is that something one is very certain about? I know the stats floating around, which is fine, but... Okay. We, we can discuss sure, that maybe sure. a little later down the line. Sure. But just coming to the point that uh, I was trying to make was that when we're looking at any kind of violence, that it, it at least involves two or more parties. Yeah. Okay? You're looking at some kind of an unresolved dispute or a creation of a dispute which is therefore possibly leading to violence is one of the ways by which that dispute is kind of expressing itself. Yeah. Now, any kind of violence to some extent in my opinion also indicates a hardening of positions mm -hmm. and a tightening of boundaries. Mm -hmm. When this kind of process takes place, mm -hmm. then it uh, you know, reduces the scope for uh, taking midway positions. Negotiation. Yeah, ne mm. Any kind of negotiations or bargaining or discussion or debate. Mm. And when we move towards a society which is becoming more and more intolerant of each other's views, you know, and the space to kind of sit together and agree to disagree mm, is getting, like when Sanil said that, you know, more and more acts of violence is what every like you can't share a joke with you know because that could also be seen as an act of violence yeah i think this is because of this hardening of positions which is uh, taking place in some ways it is also a reflection of uh, you know uh, more and more let's say hitherto marginalized uh, populations or groups uh, now asserting themselves and that assertion is also having a counter uh, reaction. So say for example when you see increasing acts of crimes against uh, women, mm -hmm. just as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, on one hand you have I increasing women, uh, in increasingly women getting empowered and on the other hand you have you know, a steady increase in terms of violence against women. How do you explain this? Yeah. And I mean one would explain this as you know that the backlash that is uh, happening because Th those sections of society which have a problem with the fact that women are now wanting an equal space uh, yeah. under the sky, they are uh, reacting to that, you know. Yeah. And therefore, in in a sense, force being used to kind of subjugate uh, these, uh, you know, this kind of changes that are taking place in society. You know, so this this you could see in terms of also say increasing crimes against Dalits, for example, you know, yeah. in the Indian. Uh, context. So, to to my mind, it is uh, it is the. I mean, I would again come back to what Dilip had uh, initially said in terms of uh, you know the sense of justice, you know? because uh, and the space that yes, you can get justice in a given socio political uh, structure, and justice is again linked up to uh, ideas, real or perceived ideas of uh, fairness and unfairness. So if if I if I'm feeling that you know there is an unfairness that is ha is happening with me, maybe real, maybe uh, perceived, and there is no space to put it on the table, and as a starting point at least acknowledge it, then you are creating avenues 
whereby uh, violence could be a way by which that issue might get uh, addressed. No, that's interesting, Vijay. But, you know, if, if one can call it that, the judicial ideology or the philosophy driving the entire judicial system, mm. I mean, one kind of presupposes that if, if there were to be a world where justice is available, mm. I, mean, I mean, all of those case laws, case studies, mm. those mm. acts and everything else, and mm. the, that, that mm. judicial intuition or the moral intuition, whatever mm. one may call it that, it, it has to be available a priori for justice to actually be rendered mm. in a manner that is mm. satisfactory. Mm. But can that happen? Can that happen at all? See, um, according to me, justice, the starting point is uh, that the, the affected parties uh, need to be heard okay. and acknowledged. Hmm? I've heard so many of these, uh, you know, under trials with whom I have worked, mm -hmm. Who would have a major grudge with the judge mm. simply because the judge doesn't listen to them? Right. You know, That's they, would very not, interesting. they would not expect that, you know, the judgment should come in their favor. I mean, I've had so many of these young That's very men interesting, saying mm. that, judge mm. huh? And mm. so the definition of who's a good judge is a judge who listens to them, mm. you know, gives them a year. You know, mm. allows them to say their piece. Mm. That has a tremendous therapeutic, uh, you know, uh, value. You know, in mm. terms of even a sense of closure as far as that person. He may then, you know, tell him that you're wrong, which is which is something that he's willing to accept. But this not being heard at all is something that really agitates the mind and then creates notions of, you know, justice and injustice in the larger. Uh, sense of the term. And it compounds that sense of victimhood almost exactly. because it keeps exactly. coming back yeah. to you. Yeah. Tell me, let's go to the notion of rehabilitation, mm. uh, Vijay. Mm. You know, yeah. let's say the act or the scene or whatever yeah. one may call it, that yeah. that act has taken place. Yeah. One yeah. is labeled an offender yeah. or a criminal or whatever. Yeah. What does one do? I mean, you've dealt with people who might be 19 or 20 years yeah. old. They have the a fairly long life ahead right. of you. Right. Right. What does one do? It's fairly difficult being in that place. Yeah, see, I would uh, imagine. I mean, over the years, what one has tried to tease out the you know the various components that one might have to address mm -hmm. if one is really looking at this whole issue of social re-entry or rehabilitation that one keeps talking about. Very often, it is unfortunately linked up with uh, you know vocational training and employment, and the. I mean, when Dilip started off <laughs> by saying... This hungry versus angry thing. Yeah, he's mm. this hungry and versus angry uh, argument that if you look at uh, most rehabilitation programs existing in the country, they are passing... Vocational training is being passed off as rehabilitation. Right. Whereas when you're looking at any kind of crime that may have taken place, uh, you see, there could be a number of reasons for it. And, uh, Poverty and lack of employment it could be something in terms of a backdrop. Sure. But the the more crucial kind of uh, areas what one needs to touch upon is, number one, in terms of breakdown of relationships mm -hmm. within the person's uh, family. Mm -hmm. uh, and the support systems that that person therefore has or does not have, depending on this whole issue of the breakdown of uh, relationships within the family structure and within the community. And the other thing is this, uh, this the change of the identity that takes place. So when you look at the work of... You mean of avenues to change one's identity? Yeah. Say, for example, when you look at the work of people like Goffman, who talked about this total institution and what it does to uh, individuals, mm. is that it, it creates uh, uh, people who then get 
labeled in a particular uh, way yeah. and then re-entry becomes extremely difficult. In our experience, what we have seen is that uh, stabilizing relationships, uh, you know, in the positive uh, sense hmm? yeah. and along with that being able to change the identity of the person. Hmm? Yeah. So, you know, to give you a, a very, uh, like an example of this person who was into criminal uh, activity yeah. and then later on after getting released and having some kind of work with that person he had a, in, a you know kind of um, interest in theater hmm? yeah and then he moved into the world of theater hmm? yeah and uh, many years down the line i when i visited his home hmm, i i kind of got a sense when i was asking around you know the name of this person and the people in the community said oh that person who who does theater hmm? yeah so it was his new identity. Yes, you know, and I at that point I felt that okay, now this person's rehabilitation is complete. But why can't your vocation be your identity? I mean, it could be a vocation, but mm. the moment you see it in terms of how does he see, perceive himself? Yeah. Now that's true. Know? So it's not just a question of income. People live in great poverty with a lot of dignity. Mm. Mm. They don't turn to crime because you know they they are poor. Hmm. But when the identity changes for whatever reasons that one is uh, looking at, and when that identity changes, how does this immediate environment react to that change of identity? Hmm? And does it close the doors for that identity to change again? Hmm. And hmm. it's true for any uh, any of us. Say, for, for example, if I have an identity of say, being a social worker, and if I want to change that identity, is there an environment which will <laughs> allow me to change that identity? What else do I know that I can do? So if you look at people who are trying to change their careers, for example, you know, mid-career change, it's not an easy job at all because, you know, you have developed a whole network of, you know, uh, relationships, uh, sustenance, uh, knowing what to do and what not to do, and then to get into a completely unknown space. That's interesting. You know, it's it's not easy at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's very interesting. Dilip, can we talk about wars for a bit? Um, because they, they seem to be, um, they seem to have an ethical, moral dimension almost, and they're just wars, apparently. Um, how has it come to get naturalized in the in the manner that it has? Well, you know, this is a uh, this is a huge subject, mm. and uh, so one can barely just touch upon it. Mm. I mean, there's a very brilliant little book written uh, by a person called James Hillman. It's called mm -hmm. Our Terrible Love of War. Our Terrible Love of War. Yeah, <laughs> where he's examined this phenomenon, you know, trying to think about why human beings have uh, been having about on on average two point six wars for the last five thousand years. Hmm. Per year, two point six wars so per year. Two point six <laughs> wars. Per, I mean, he's calculated <laughs> some figure: five thousand five hundred years of recorded history, fourteen thousand or or some number of sure. wars. So, so there's a propensity to go to war. So uh, th there is a human propensity to aggression. Mm -hmm. Now, one can argue psychologically that aggression is very much a part of the human makeup, and a human being cannot learn to adjust to society or survive without this drive for aggression uh, which I tend to agree with you know I mean human beings have uh, are very ill-equipped physically uh, to deal with the natural environment mm -hmm. you know they are equipped mentally in a way that animals aren't right so animals need the immediate environment to be absolutely 
uh, you know, one-to-one -one linked to the requirements of the animal, whereas human beings have lived through ice ages and deserts and all kinds of very adverse material circumstances and managed to survive because of the application of mind. Mm. So mm. it is mm. arguable that uh, human beings are very uh, are not very well suited physically to deal with the environment, but they are uh, mentally, intellectually, they have an organ, the brain, that enables them to figure out how to survive. So this figuring out how to survive also requires the, the drive, the uh, aggressive instinct. So it is arguable uh, in terms of evolution and Freudian theory and so on that uh, the aggressive drive is essential to human survival. It's the hypertrophy of aggression that we are actually dealing with, where aggression then becomes uh, phylogenetically passed on from generation to generation, then it becomes something else. We, we get the autonomy of violence. So the what I mean by phenomenology of violence, that we need to examine violence when it becomes autonomous of this telos or that goal or this drive or the other. Right. You know, so right. we need to deal with the phenomenon as if it has become autonomous. This is something which historians those of them who have studied it would refer to in in part by referring to the example of militarism. Mm. So militarism is not just military tactics mm. or military logistics mm. or the science of winning a particular battle mm. or technology. Militarism mm. is not any of that. Militarism is the love of war. Militarism mm. is the cult of war. Mm. Militarism is the cult of martyrdom. Martyrdom mm. is not simply uh, dealing with death. Martyrdom mm. is conferring a certain aura on the dead. Yes. For the purpose of the living, because the dead person is gone. They're not least bothered whether they're a martyr or not. <laughs> when we say X, Y, Z is a martyr, that's what we are saying to um, ourselves as the living people, that this person is a martyr. So it's a, a conferring. So this martyrdom as an aura about death. No, but martyrdom is sought, Dilip. It's sought. Martyrdom is sought. But martyrdom is sought because... See, the, the, the decision to commit suicide is still made when one is alive. Yeah. So it's obviously something that is done with uh, by a living person. That, yeah. that aura is created by the living for the living. Yeah. And once one is dead, it doesn't matter. So uh, we are uh, actually dealing with a phenomenon, the autonomy of violence, the hypertrophy of aggression, the phenomenon of militarism, all of them have become a kind of automaton through history. Many times you find certain things that are done for non-utilitarian ends. So it's not a case of diplomacy breaking down and then wars taking uh, over? I don't think so. I think that's far-fetched. I think that's a very superficial view of it. Mm. There is much deeper, the militarism is much deeper than that. So for, for example, militarism is something that runs across, to use Marxist terminology, modes of production. Right. See, Marxists like to place everything within more stages of history and so on. But there are certain things which surpass this or straddle the stages of history. Mm. You'll mm. find, uh, you know, patriarchy. You'll mm. find patriarchy straddling many phases of history. Mm. Similarly, uh, so one reason why to address uh, Sanil's question as to why we don't have a phenomenology of, phenomenology of violence mm. is because we are reluctant to go to places which show us up in a manner that is very embarrassing or disconcerting. Because violence and all... What does that mean? I mean, I'll tell you exactly what I mean. Violence and militarism is the ground shared by enemies. <laughs> if it is shared by enemies, actually, I don't want to show show one aspect of my character which makes me no different from the person whom I excoriate day and night. 
Yeah, that's very, very, very interesting. So that's why mm. we don't study it because there's nothing to differ- differentiate us then any longer. We lose our identity in our common love of war, in our common love for violence, in our common brutality. <laughs> This is one thing that you see George Orwell said. You know, having lived through the Second World War and all, he said there's not one single crime and atrocity or enormity for which we accuse the enemy, which we are not guilty of ourselves. Yes. So that's why we don't analyze it. I found this very often with Marxist friends and people on the left and all. I say that what what have we done? Why are you attacking the other side? You're free to do so and criticize them, and so do I. But why why don't we look in ourselves? We don't want to look inside, so we project. In Freudian psychoanalysis, also we know that some of our deepest fears, some of our deepest guilt, we project onto the other party. And say mm. you are responsible for this, not me. Mm. That's mm. why we like to play victim. Mm. That's why even the Nazis see themselves as victims of Jews, not Jews as victims of Nazis. Mm. Okay, so this is one reason why we don't have a phenomenology because it is the 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 most grievous elephant in the drawing room is the shared complicity of humanity in all that we have done. That's where we don't want to go. You know, I mean that is the phenomenon which we are faced with in India also. we're faced with the whole of south asia yeah if if the yeah. Uh, i yeah. mean if we want to start talking politics we can go there but the fact is that you have a you have a, a state of affairs where many of the states in south asia they are increasingly undergoing a criminalization of the polity where the whole state has become a criminal enterprise There's a right. conspiracy to deprive people of justice. There's destruction of the justice system. There's use of military and police merely to commit injustices. There's no redress for ordinary people. Insurgencies become the norm. There's a normalization of murder. Don't you? See, I mean, the, I'm glad we're having this discussion because at least there's one place to place it on the bloody table. In our country, the stealing of money, the theft of money, is considered a far more grievous crime than mass murder. The whole middle class, you have a little bit of mass murder, genocide here and there. You know what happens. The naturalization of stealing money is a bad chap. Yeah. What is this? Yeah. So we yeah. have complete disregard for human life. You can, whether you look at India, Pakistan, the partition wars, the ethnic cleansing that has gone on all over the place, ethnic cleansing in 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 Sri Lanka. violence in bangladesh violence in nepal i mean the whole place is full of it if we want to have a real exam, example of ge- perpetual genocidal mania it is in our part of the world we what's the per- future dilip the future it's very difficult we'll come back me. to you oh, sanil yeah. what's the future what's the future of violence what's the future of the notion of violence what's the future of wars yeah, and what would a world without violence be like I think uh, the important thing is to we also need to understand what is the present of violence. Yes. Right. You know yes. something like war. Yes. That's it at all because now the 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 positions of war, genocide, or seems to be the market nearby, not in the border where hmm. aggressive armies are hmm. uh, facing. Hmm. Right. So the na- what is the contemporary form of violence or what is the contemporary form of crime? Hmm. Right. I think. the first important but what i think what we have shared in the discussion is that it's been rendered mundane mundane and uh, the the difficulty is that the tools we are trying to use mm-hmm. or the ethical concern which is bringing us to the question mm-hmm. that itself is somewhere screening us away from the phenomenon that's why the question is so uh, you know 
difficult to ask. And uh, so that's when we need to watch, for example, what is the uh, agenda of punishment uh, for our contemporary, uh, you know, society. So now there are economists now who says that, no, it's not criminology or anthropology, we should argue. You know, a crime is an act by which I run the risk of taking punishment, right? So I just define it like this so that I can now free it off from any question about the mental life of the person who is doing it. So hence, there will be a commensurability between an economic offender, a mass murder, and we don't make internal difference between uh, them. So if that is the way in which we are going to see... There's some kind of transvaluation. Transvaluation, but maybe mm. it has advantages mm. in the mm. sense of, you know, for once we might let the person speak about the calculation he's doing because we are no longer now interested in whether you are a type of person who is criminal. You actually <laughs> did a calculation and it can be objectively represented. But, you know, in that sense, we have come a full circle because we are now... These, these theories are the rational choice theories. Uh, which, you know, actually, uh, uh, you have to go back to Bentham and Beccaria's uh, free will theories. <laughs> so having traveled a whole, you know, 200 years, where, whereby from looking at crime and punishment as, uh, you know, what kind of laws should be made, which, which assume that human beings are rational people, and therefore it's safe to make laws whether that once they know uh, what should be the punishment for a particular crime, it, it is to be assumed that they have made a choice and therefore have committed the act. From there to have moved into, you know, the psychological and the sociological <laughs> theories and now having come back to, you know, rational choice theories, I almost feel as if, you know, we are going around in, uh, in circles, circles, you know, and depending on the, you know, the the so socio-political, economic phases through which uh, society uh, goes through, and this is also one of the greatest criticisms of disciplines like criminology by the critical criminologists that, you know, they are part of that uh, uh, group of people who are creating the ideology which market economy wants you to create, you know. Right, right, right. No, if I, if I may, just for, because, you know, it will be from Bentham onwards. Yes. So what is so crucial about our time will be the subtle changes the theories are making now. They're saying now, okay, we cannot now think about like the classical yes. Benthamites as society without crime. Let's find out what is the minimum allowable crime optimal, in a society. So that, yeah, so the justice is now a question about how do we deal with a available illegalism, illegal behavior in a society. Now, we are no longer defining it in terms of entirely breaking the law, uh, etc. And this will have a major implication about what violence is and how much we can, you know, access to. So for me, the question which you asked, what will be the future of violence? I think today we should ask, what will be the future of police? Right? What is police doing? What will be the future of the police? 500 years out. That's for, imagine a situation where violence, you know, we follow the rational calculation and say violence in real life is becoming increasingly costly. We just don't do violence because it is increasingly costly and technology will ensure that our activities will be coordinated in an efficient way. So it is fairly futile to resolve to questions about uh, violence. I can, you know, instead of going and shooting people, I start a petition on change.org might be more effective. <laughs> so mm. in such a society, mm. right, 
uh, mm. what will be the uh, future but the question is what will be the place of morality in such a society where will you uh, generate moral intuition such a society there we might just go back to questions about violence maybe residual violence we might just want in that society just to provoke the people's uh, you know moral something primal in them uh, i think that happens even conversely for example if you look at something like revenge mm. right revenge is self escalating mm. right and once it escalates how do you break it people break it when the parties if they can manage to hate each other the escalating violence right so mm. violence actually contributes to the possibility of ethics even in contemporary uh, you know society because hatred that's why you know shegwara said hatred is a revolutionary sentiment it's not because it will make us yeah. angry but it allows us to break with this feeling you know injured injustice somewhere if i can manage to hate the other right so then there are these possibilities in this so in future society even if you think about a society without violence become extremely non profitable mm. still i think maybe for ethical reasons uh, we might be able to uh, invent violence in a, a certain sense but then that will be a, that is perhaps the first time humanity will ask a proper ethical question about uh, you know violence now we have all decided it is unacceptable the core question is why is it hanging around right. why it is persisting but maybe in future is that we will ask the proper question about uh, what's the future of the police or the act of policing yeah because you know even contemporary society given judiciary and executive mm. with the division of labor between them one shouldn't expect police as the historically redundant thing you know in a in a society right so that it is that historically redundant position of uh, police is what makes it so in fact you know this famous novel by jb ballard where in a society where violence becomes totally uh, redundant uh-huh. the police actually conducts crime <laughs> so that people could have some morally you know in a society where i think so that their moral intuition doesn't go away yeah in a you know where once violence <laughs> migrate into computer games right maybe that's the time police will have a role to in fact uh, if you ask yeah. me that question i would say that uh, you know if you are what's going to be the future of the police we are today uh, living in times and we are increasingly going to live in times where we are going to be part of a surveillance society yeah and in that surveillance society policing is also going to get increasingly privatized which which means that more and more uh, parts of our life would get outsourced into security agencies you know and uh, this is what you know ulrich beck's uh, theory of risk society you know mm. where the th- we've built a world today where the kind of risks that exist to human survival itself you know mm. has uh, is of such a large scale you know the way in which for example destruction of environment is going on where the earth itself the survival of the earth itself is at question now these kind of ideas are paving the way f- whereby the the defining of the criminal as uh, you know like somebody who can be identified mm, is now getting more and more diluted right and in this in this scenario uh, anybody can be a potential deviant yeah yeah and 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 therefore uh, the search for the classical typical criminal uh, is almost futile and therefore you need to create 
security systems whereby all of our lives can be uh, you know uh, watched over so what george orwell talked about in 1984 is actually mm-hmm. a part of our everyday lives today you know and this is this has dangerous implications because you know more and more uh, you know the privacy of our lives is being intruded upon and 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 this is going to lead to a situation where the state is going to be an omnipresent uh, omnipotent kind of a institution so if you look at and police mm. is going to be a part of that that schema of uh, things and we can already s- see it happening around us as of now it's still not kind of breathing down our necks but it's very close to that uh, that reality mm, that sounds ominous yeah, it does <laughs> what's the future dilip what's the future of violence what can substitute violence what should substitute violence what might substitute violence see um See, it's it's if we cannot prepare, pretend to be prophets so one cannot answer that question with uh, any degree of certainty sure one can only talk about the processes at work in the present yeah and try to understand these processes to see if there are any redeeming features yeah and uh, i think there are certain set of questions which uh, we need to keep in mind Mm-hmm. uh one is that um the whole i mean if you talk about police now if we just turn the thing around and see that there are many state structures which have a heart and a core of criminality where dissidents are shot in the street whether yeah. it's in pakistan whether it's in russia whether it's in maharashtra where pansare was killed yeah. or dabholkar uh, was killed and there's no sign of punishment yeah. like bloggers in bangladesh are killed there's a core of criminality in the state yeah. what are we talking about police yeah so if that's the ca- and secret police apparatuses are there within all the states they have unlimited budgets they can carry out uh, assassinations yeah. they're represented in crime thrillers and in crime serials yeah. but it's the reality what's the future dilip so uh, i'm i'm just trying to mull over this sure <laughs> so uh, if there's criminality at the core of the state then what people have to think about is how to sidestep that yes and how to try to neutralize that mm-hmm. uh, and uh, i would say that there are also countervailing tendencies mm-hmm. like just like you say that with the self assertion of women there is a common increasing crimes against women mm-hmm. similarly with the self assertion of autonomous zones in society there is also the increasing surveillance of society mm-hmm. so uh, for instance just look at the phenomenon of the encyclopedia and what wikipedia has done to it yeah that's a commons it's created by millions of people who are running it and contributing to it and adding to the knowledge and there's no cost yeah it's free so that has done something to the encyclopedia industry to the advertising industry to a whole lot of things so there are commons that are sprouting all over around us all the social media we have they have a dark side to it but they also have the positive side that we can communicate to each other without you know any kind of inter- intermediary so what might be the equivalent in our context so what i'm saying is that the only look at the bottom line is that you have to continue talking because violence is the end of speech right and the only way you can uh, do that you can utilize all the possibilities and media available to you to keep on discussing if there is injustice you must protest as you say about democracy if you don't use it you lose it yeah so yeah. i would say that's what i would say i mean we have a democratic capacity to speak we have yeah. free speech of course there's the corporates which are taking over the news media they're taking over the newspapers and the tv channels but then if you have any 
any antidote to it, then you must use it. If you don't use it, it, it will also fall into disuse. So, the, the, so one that's one set of general remarks. But if you go more into the particular issues, then we have a state of affairs in which people are still mesmerized by ideology. Mm-hmm. Stupidity is still leveraged and levered in as a tool of state policy. Deliberate inculcation of stupidity is a state policy. I'm not just saying this for to gain a laugh. The French Ministry of Defense vets French textbooks. All our textbooks are doctored by all kinds of lunatics. They don't want history has become a battleground. I know as a historian, I can tell you there's no room for you know serious debate. Everybody's become a polemicist and propagandist. And state machineries come into play in, in determining what young children will learn. You see? So there is a clear example. If you look at Pakistani textbooks, you know, you will see the kind of stuff that the children are taught about. If you look at the textbooks divided among communities in Sri Lanka, you'll see Tamil children learn What's one the thing future? and Sinhalese children learn another thing. So the future is to carry on a dialogue. The future is to continue to seek for truth. That's the philosopher's truth. Yeah. That's the, I mean, that's why philosophy return, retains a place in human history and life and relevance. Mm. Very important place. Mm. Because you might learn a lot of science, you might learn a lot of management, you might learn a lot of chartered accountancy. That just tells you how to work some system. Mm. It doesn't tell you about the eternal verities. How should I live? What is good? What is evil? And these are questions that have been asked since the time. They are asked in Aristotle, they are asked in Plato, they are asked in Hegel, they are asked in the Mahabharat. What yeah. is the Yaksh Prashan of the Mahabharat, the famous Yaksh Prashan? I mean, all the Panch Pandavas go to the river, to the lake, they start drinking, they die one after the other because they fail to answer the question of the Yaksh and the Yaksh um, ultimately Yudhishthir answers the question. And what is the crucial question? What is the, what is the supreme virtue? Mm-hmm. And supreme virtue, I mean, there are many interpretations, but I... I What's the supreme virtue? Ahinsa Parmo Dharma. <laughs> Ahinsa Parmo Dharma. There's a variation on it, which is Anrishansyam Parmo Dharma. Mm-hmm. Anrishansyam meaning abstinence from cruelty. Right, right. So right. That, that's another very, very interesting philosophical debate. Because abs- abstinence from cruelty as a, is actually a mixture of violence and non-violence. Right. Because that is a virtue that can be practiced by the divine butcher. Hmm. <laughs> because the divine butcher is himself a killer of animals, so he cannot practice non-violence. But at least he can practice absence, uh, abstinence from cruelty. So th- that is uh, an important debate. And I think we learn something from the Mahabharata. So, the, so there are things in the Mahabharata which has to be seen again in Aristotle, which has to be... I mean, you find there are human beings are philosophically grappling with this question. Across eras and modes of production. Mm. So that means that we must persist with philosophical speculation and inquiry. You will agree with that, Sandal? Yeah, definitely. Difficult to disagree with that. I think the beautiful point that has come out there is to make a distinction between violence and brutality. Yeah. I think that when we get a hold on that issue, I think the question of violence will begin to uh, open. And that's where I think we need to continue the question. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to all of you for making it. We really appreciate it. Look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.